0: someone was to ask you, are you a good person? I wonder how you'd answer them. I suspect if you're anything like me, you might mumble something of an inadequate and slightly unclear answer, but I would probably come on the right side of good while not wanting to seem immodest about that. Because thinking of ourselves as good is almost a psychological necessity. To imply that someone is not good, Well, just wait for the response, because it'll be coming your way if you do. To think of ourselves as bad jeopardises a huge amount. When we challenge our innate sense that we are good people, we can end up in all sorts of difficult places. But tonight, Jesus is our good doctor. His diagnosis is sure, his intent is loving, and his solution is glorious. We can trust the friend of sinners to be at once truthful and gentle. But we need soft hearts to receive his words. So let me pray for us before we start. Lord Jesus Christ, we want the truth about ourselves and about you. We entrust you this evening to deal with our hearts, to draw close to us in our need. I pray for anyone this evening struggling with identity or with anxious thoughts. Father, please reveal the whole of your Son the glory and the majesty, but the gentleness and the tenderness, the friend of sinners. And this evening, may we be encouraged, gladdened and warmed through the power of the Spirit this evening. Amen. Well, the passage that Rob read to us comes in the middle of Mark's Gospel, which we're going through at the moment. Um, And there is... The pantomime hiss when you hear the word Pharisee, and the moment that comes into the text, we know they're the bad guys. There's another contra- controversy on its way. And we've run into the Pharisees before. In Mark's Gospel, they've challenged Jesus' ability to forgive. Do you remember the cripple on the mat? They've asked how Jesus can eat alongside sinners and tax collectors, His disciples don't always fast, they pick grain on the Sabbath, Jesus heals people on the Sabbath, and today in chapter 7, they're back. They've been largely absent since chapter 3, but they're back. And they come with a threat, because the last we heard in chapter 3, they were plotting to kill Jesus. And the controversy that we have this evening is this. Some of those disciples are not washing their hands before they eat. Now this was not a health problem. This was a spiritual problem. And we know that from verse 3 because it says that they do not eat, and the Pharisees do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing. So this is not about personal cleanliness, this is about ritual and spiritual cleanliness. And we have the Oxford and Cambridge Dons to come and help the local police enforce this. The Pharisees, clearly the Jesus problem has got beyond local means to resolve it. So Jerusalem is quite a long way to the south from where we are. We're in the Northern Territories and we're up near the Sea of Galilee and they've had experts in the law come up from Jerusalem and they gather round him. The text says they gather around. This isn't a campfire scene, this isn't a convivial chat. The gathering round sounds like an encroachment around Jesus. They're trying to catch him out. They're trying to cast Jesus in a bad light. He's in the wrong, not us. And they're tackling the problem of cleanliness, of defilement. How can I be clean? Now remember, these people had been brought up on a strict diet of separateness. To be holy means to be set apart. One example from two kings Um, In judgment on Israel, they imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered, do not do as they do. To be holy was to be different. And ceremonial practices and rituals were part of that difference. And in Leviticus, just for context, um, we read this in Leviticus 7. If anyone touches something unclean... Whether human uncleanness or an unclean animal or any unclean detestable thing and then eats any of the meat of the fellowship offering belonging to the Lord, that person must be cut off from his people. It's clear. Now the meat of fellowship was one of the rituals, it was a thankfulness. So basically if you want to give thanks to the Lord, the meat of the fellowship was offered as a means of giving thanks in ancient Israel to God. But notice how what we have in the passage tonight is a specific circumstance about washing before the meat of the fellowship. But in our passage tonight, um, in Mark 7, um, we have a slight expansion. Remember in verse 3 in Mark 7, it says, they do not eat. And again in verse 4, they do not eat. They never eat before washing their hands for a thankfulness offering or anything else. They've taken a very narrow circumstance, and they had widened it. I mean, why risk breaking the law when you can just have a blanket ban? Wash under any circumstances, you'll be safe. And we learn in this passage that these practices had sprouted from the original law. So from the original law, we have a new body of legislation... And this is far more extensive, far more detailed. It filled in all the little gaps. It removed any ambiguity and it spelled it out in every detail for the people to know exactly what it was that would make them good, that would make them acceptable. Prohibitions that were vague were now clarified. General principles were worked out with extraordinary care and detail. Every situation of life had come under this extra biblical law. By one count, rules relating to the Sabbath alone had exceeded one and a half thousand rules about what to do on Sundays, Saturdays. But imagine that one and a half thousand rules. My word, that's only for one day of the week. With a different set of rules for all the other days. And these rulings had grown so thick and so tall, they had taken out the view of God himself. So when these Pharisees see Jesus' disciples disregarding the rules that they were following so meticulously, well, it begs a very simple question. Why? Verse 5, why? Why? Do you think they were curious? Do you think they were genuine? Explain this to me. I, I'm, I'm really interested to know how it is that we have to live in these rules and you don't. I think they are meaning something slightly more sinister than a genuine open minded curiosity. We learned from chapter three they're plotting to kill Jesus, and they have history of doing this. They've promoted a controversy. Have you noticed how the question why calls someone to make a defence? It can be very, very innocent. But the question why so to share your reasoning with me so that I may scrutinise it. I can critique it. You see, the question why can be a surprisingly hostile word when you think about it. Now let's pause there for a moment. These holy... Men, the Pharisees, were not casual. They were not delinquent. They were not lazy. Quite the opposite. These men were diligent, attentive and devoted men. No part of life had escaped their attention. Theirs was a 360 degree faith encompassing every aspect of life. How is Jesus going to respond to this question, why do your disciples eat with unwashed hands? And we know from the previous chapter, Jesus has compassion. He sees a crowd, says, your sheep without a shepherd, I had, I'll have compassion on you and I will teach. So how is Jesus going to respond to this question, Why? Will he take a similarly compassionate view and just start explaining scripture? Well, Jesus is in no mood for a theological debate about the merits of washing. Instead, Jesus parachutes us as he parachuted the Pharisees directly back into a prophecy from the years of Isaiah and he delivers this stinging rebuke. His reply in verse 6, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it's written, these people honour me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God. And you are holding on to human traditions. Wow. Jesus even adopts a word that is not in the Aramaic language. The word hypocrite is Greek for actor. There wasn't even an Aramaic equivalent because the Jews did not approve of theater. So he's taking a word from the Greek, the Gentiles, and he's saying, you're like them, You're you're acting this. It's not real. You don't mean it. It's an outward sign of an inward fiction. It's not authentic obedience to God. You could almost cut the atmosphere, couldn't you? And the reading we had from Amos, speaking just decades before Isaiah, These difficult words, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. You see, it is possible to be zealous in the name of God for entirely the wrong things. To gather and for God to despise it. To give sacrificially and for it to be unacceptable. To sing and for God to close his ears. And Jesus' diagnosis to the Pharisees, you've swapped out God. You've taken away his commands. You've decided that you can cast aside what God wants from you and you can make your own way to good. You see, Jesus has been scrutinizing them back, they've had Jesus under the microscope but he's now got them in the crosshairs. This is now serious because the Son of God has come in with words for them. And not only are they bypassing the commands of God, they're driving a coach and horses through the middle of them. He accuses them not only of ignoring the, the word of God, the commands, he accuses them of scheming against the commands. And this accusation he introduces in verse eleven, this principle of Corban. And Jesus quotes Exodus chapter twenty, that says, Honor your father and mother. Exodus chapter twenty one whoever curses his mother or father must be put to death. So Jesus is going straight back to the law. Now here's how Corban works. You have aging parents. And the children should support their ageing parents in need. Parents are not to be dishonoured through neglect. But these men had decided to carve out a piece of their own wealth, a piece of their pie, that would otherwise have been used to support their ageing parents, and kept it. Perhaps they gave it to the temple, we don't know. But critically, what was due to the parents to honour them was now subverted for their own means. They had baptised their own greed and a sprinkling of the word korban, and it was all okay. But here's the best of it. It appears noble. See how godly these men are. Devoting their money for God. How sacrificial. How good of them. It's easy to see why Jesus was so angry with them. It's appalling. And in case we think this is an isolated example, verse 13, you do many things like this. Well, there we have it the demolition is complete the Pharisees don't even reply the crowd is feeling good maybe we feel good this is hard hitting for those who need to be hit hard but Jesus doesn't stop there does he he goes on To describe something a little bit more of a cliffhanger for the crowd. In verse 15, he says this Nothing outside a man can make him unclean. Should we just stop there? Is that where Jesus wants his message to land? Don't be silly. That's not going to make you unclean. I've corrected that one. End of lesson. But the darker side is coming. The bleaker truth is revealed. The qualification maybe that none of us wants to hear. 2,000 years ago or tonight? Verse 15. Rather it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. If you're in the crowd, that was the last thing you heard. What sense can you make of that? It's the original theological cliffhanger. What comes out of a man makes him unclean. Yes, and? Explain that. Well, thank God that we have scripture. Because at verse uh, 17, there's a change of scene. You'll notice that there's no verse 16. Come and ask me... Afterwards, if you'd like to know why there's no verse 16 in Mark 7. But we move to a new scene. The crowd has left, and we move to the intimacy of a home. Possibly Peter's home in Capernaum. We don't know. Not for sure. And the disciples ask Jesus about this what comes out of a man makes him unclean. And Jesus, with his usual tactful self, says, Do you not understand? He says again in verse 18, nothing that enters a man can make him unclean. And in a graphic aside, he says what comes into a man bypasses the heart and goes straight to the bowel. Okay. But Jesus is saying you don't have to worry about that because that's not affecting the heart. Jesus goes on in verse 20. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Wow. Well, we can pull up the drawbridge, we can shutter the windows, we can lock the doors, but we can't protect ourselves from this. We can wash our hands, we can wash our cups, our pitchers, our kettles. But the reality that Jesus is speaking of is that we generate enough dirt of our own. That kind of cleaning ain't going to cut it. So this is bleak. You can't be protected from these evils, as Jesus says, You can no more separate yourself from these evils than you can separate yourself from yourself. Because the truth is, we are the problem. You see, the Pharisees had a very neat way of understanding the problem of cleanliness, of how to be good. They thought to themselves, I can protect myself from the incoming tide. If I build enough defences... I'll stem the tide and I'll stay safe. But sin is not an incoming tide, is it? It is not something against which you can build defences. It is not coming at us from another source. It's not out there, much as we would like to believe it is. Instead of a tide coming in, Defilement is a fountain flowing out. As a dear pastor here used to say, every sin is an inside job. Well, the good Dr. Jesus has pronounced his diagnosis. But where's the resolution? Where's the cure? For this we need to wind forward and we need to wind backwards. Let's wind forward first. You don't need to look it up. But Jesus quoted the passage in Isaiah 29 and he stopped at verse 12, but, at verse 13. But the very next verse, verse 14, says this. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder And the wisdom of the wise shall perish and the intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. And if those words sound familiar, they're quoted by Paul when he talks about the foolishness of the cross. You see, Isaiah saw to a wonderful day with wonderful things. That's our wind forward. Now let's wind back in Mark We started at chapter 7, verse 1, but if if your Bibles are open, then try looking at chapter 6, verse 56. Because the wonderful things are here. This is what it says. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. Healed. You see, the long-awaited Messiah has broken into history. The one the Lord has anointed is here to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release the prisoners from darkness, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. You see, in Mark 7, we're at the cusp of Peter's momentous realisation when Jesus says who do you say I am and Peter says you are the Christ see our defilement is real and it is from the inside out and that's the bad news is Jesus a good teacher yes But we need more than moral instruction. If all Jesus did was to come to point out uh, the places where we failed him, to point the finger at us, we would still be dead in our sins. But we need the cleanliness that only comes from the outside in. And that's why Paul could write so forcefully in Romans 3.21... But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. You see, Jesus is doing more than resetting the Pharisees' understanding of the law. He's doing more than simply saying, you're following the wrong law, follow these laws. He's coming to fulfil the law from the outside in. You see, we are not justified by what we do from the inside out, but from what Jesus has done from the outside in. Because, brothers and sisters, the problem is in here, and the solution is out there. And what the Pharisees had got fatally wrong... Was thinking that the problem was out there and the solution was in here. So let me ask Are you a good person? Well, if we are honest with ourselves, we must surely acknowledge we are not wholly good, our hearts are not pure. let me finish by reassuring you that you may not be pure but you are worthy you are worthy of the Father's love abounding every day for you an ocean with neither seabed nor seashore you are worthy of Christ's abounding grace who tasted death that we might live And you are worthy of the Spirit's comfort so that we might not live as orphans but know the Son as the Son is known by the Father. There is no need now to generate our own goodness because he has made us good and in fact he will make us perfect as a spotless bride Let me me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for reaching into history so perfectly. Thank you that this good news is available, that it is proclaimed. And Father, thank you that we do not have to decide how we measure up to be good. But instead, the good Savior has embraced us and brought us into his family. O oh Lord, we ask that we might be touched by this truth. And Father, by the power of your spirit, we might turn that into deeds of thankfulness so that your precious name would be glorified. Amen.